Open your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Um, we've been going through Mark's gospel, um, seeing some incredible things as Mark presents the gospel uh, to the Roman mind. That's kind of the approach we're taking, understanding that Mark is writing about action, what Jesus did. And last week, we were in, in chapter 6, we looked at verses 7 through 13, where Jesus sent out the 12. Um, and we noted, as does Luke in his gospel, that Jesus sent out the 12, and, in the, and the account is in two pieces. There's him sending out the 12, and then there's the issue of John the Baptist being beheaded right in the middle, and then the 12 come back. Now, Matthew records uh, the 12 being sent out, but he doesn't connect it to the issue of John so clearly, John's death, but, but Mark does here, as does Luke. And observed last week, and it was, it was a conclusion, it wasn't the text, it's always important to make that distinction between what the text says and the conclusions that we draw, um, but it was the conclusion that I would draw is that the timing of Jesus sending out the 12 had a lot to do with Mark, or with, rather with John being beheaded, and that's why they're connected the way they are in both Mark's gospel and in Luke. Well, this week we come to the actual section that talks about the death of John the Baptist. And so, again, the setting is... Uh, the disciples have just returned. They've told Jesus all the great stuff that happened. And we'll pick up the account at verse 14. So Mark chapter 6, verse 14. And King Herod heard of it. That is the disciples coming back and all the great report they had, right? King Herod heard of it. For his name had become well known. That's a reference to Jesus. His name had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist had risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others were saying he's Elijah. Others were saying he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he kept saying, John, whom I have beheaded, has risen. Father, we thank you for your word. As we look to your word this morning, Father, we ask you to open our hearts, our minds. Help us to follow this and see the truth that you, by your spirit, instructed Mark to write down that we would understand. Jesus' name, amen, amen. Um, had some good discussions about this whole section with some folks this week, and I do so much appreciate when people are reading ahead, you know, getting your mind focused on that. And if you have read this section either this week in preparation or just recently, or you just happen to know the Gospel of Mark well, you'll know there's a couple of really interesting features about this particular section of Mark's gospel. Some things um, really stand out. Of course, Mark's gospel is the shortest of the gospels. Mark is all about brevity, right? Make the point, tell us what happened, move on. But Mark gives more space to this event than either Matthew or Luke. Matthew gives it three verses. Luke's a little more generous. He gives it 12. Well, Mark here gives it 16. Even though his normal approach to things is to be as brief as possible. So that's the first thing. Despite being the shortest gospel, Mark gives an awful lot of space to this event. The other thing that stands out, at least for me, is he really doesn't talk about Jesus. Other than that reference at the very beginning, where he says that people thought, you know, that maybe this was Jesus because of all the things that Jesus and the Twelve were doing, Jesus isn't anywhere in this story. And, I mean, Mark's not about just giving us a first century history lesson, Mark. It's telling us about Jesus. So what is going on? I've left, when I'm reading this passage, um, a little confused as I, as I was going over it. What, why is this here? Why is Mark telling us this stuff if Mark's task is to tell us 
about Jesus? What's going on? And so to answer that, um, kind of took the usual process that I like to take. I go through the passage, look at the details as much as I can, see whatever observations can be readily made, and then try to ask that question, exactly what is going on. And I would suggest um, that, in fact, this is a very contemporary message for us. This is so much more, so much more uh, than a history lesson. So let's begin just by looking at the whole section uh, somewhat quickly and get an idea of exactly what happened. Of course, it starts with the 12 coming back. That's verse 13, telling Jesus all the great stuff that's been going on, right? Word gets out, right? And then the story turns in verse 14 to King Herod. Herod hears about this, and he goes, ah, this is John the Baptist, the guy I killed. He's come back to life, right? Basically, it's a panic attack. I don't know if you sense that, but one thing we're going to discover about Herod, Herod had a really good way of solving problems, right? You kill him. If you've read this account before, maybe you've never noticed this, when the time actually comes for Herod to put John the Baptist to death, he doesn't send for an executioner, he just turns to the executioner, right? So he has an executioner on standby, right? That is this guy's way of solving problems, and that works, right? Until the people you kill start coming back to life, and then you have a serious problem. So this is Herod having something of a panic attack, right? Others, of course, verse 15, they think it's somebody else. Maybe it's Elijah, something else is going on. They don't know, right? Verse 16, Herod is thoroughly convinced. He said, it's John whom I beheaded. He has risen, right? Now, verses 17 through 28 give us the details of exactly what happened. It's, it's kind of a little mental history reflection because it's already happened, but it's explaining what Herod had on his mind. He says in verse 17, for Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's life. So what happened, the reason John was in prison in the first place is he called Herod to task for marrying his brother's wife. And this is quite the family. Um, there's always a temptation, you know, when, when you're, you're pastor and, and you want to preach about this kind of stuff, to put the diagram up, right? And I don't know if you've ever seen a diagram of the Herodian family, especially one that's color-coded. It looks like a crayon factory exploded. Because it's, it's not like one of, those, one of those family charts that goes from top to bottom. It goes from top to bottom, and then it loops back up. It's a mess. This family, was a, they were a real piece of work. And... Um, We'll talk a little bit more about them but as we get into this. But Herod was in a situation that was prohibited by the law. Um, he had divorced his wife so he could marry Herodias, who had divorced her husband so that she could marry him. That's the basic plot of what is happening. And John the Baptist has spoke up and said, you can't do that, right? Not allowed. And because of that, Herod had imprisoned him, okay? Uh, but he didn't want to kill him. It says down in verse 20, because he was a holy man, this guy is conflicted. He's a holy man. He, wants to, he doesn't like what he's saying, doesn't like what he's being told, doesn't like being called to task, but he's afraid of killing him because he's a holy man. And then it says in the same verse, he also enjoyed listening to him. So this, this guy is anything but stable. He's, he's, all, he's all over the place, right? Um, but then in verse 21, what is called a strategic day came, and that would be a convenient day. You see, as conflicted as Herod was, Herodias was not conflicted. She was very clear. 
She wants John dead. I want his head. I want him dead. And on this particular day, verse 20, verse 21, Herod throws a big party, all of his important people, they come in, and Herodias, his stepdaughter niece, it's a mess, his stepdaughter niece, comes in and she dances and she pleases him. You can interpret that the way you want to. You can get whatever visual on that you want, right? And so Herod blurts out that he will give her anything, even up to half of his kingdom. So that's how that went, all right? And when he made that promise, verse 23, he swore to her, wherever you ask of me, I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. She went out and she said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And her mother said, the head of John the Baptist. Now, reading this, as I'm reading it, I'm getting the idea that mom and daughter are like on the same page, right? Right? Mom and daughter, you know, they can't wait for an opportunity to get rid of this John the Baptist guy. And so the minute, you know, the king makes the promise, she runs to mom, is this the time to do it? Yeah, mom, boom, go ask for another John the Baptist. Interestingly, in Matthew's record of this, in Matthew's, one of the things, even though Matthew just gives it three verses, one of the things he added is that the mother literally pressured the daughter into doing this, right? Or another translation would say he, she impressed the daughter. So this wasn't necessarily something the daughter was totally on board with. You know, and I just kind of, okay, let myself kind of draw the visual here. We have a, a royal princess, and she's been told to go out to the party and dance and see if everybody has a good time. And she gets this promise from her stepdad, uncle, king, you know, whatever, I'm not going to go any farther than that, that he'll give her up to half of the kingdom, right? She's a young lady, young or girl, teenager, we don't know how old she was, and her first thought is what? Oh, good, you know, a prophet's head. I don't think so. Probably more like, you know, down at the stable, there's that really good-looking black stallion. Maybe he'll give me that. Or, just take him at his word, half your kingdom, I got it, it's mine, we're co-regents now right? I'm not sure the daughter was on board with this at all, but mom is. And so mom says, you go back out. And there's another clue in the text. Exactly what did the mother say? The mother said, uh, here in verse, um, verse 24, went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? She said, the head of John the Baptist. That's what mom asked for, the head of John the Baptist. By the time the daughter whose name was Salome, gets out, back out to the party. Here's how the request is, is worded. Verse 23. Immediately, she came in haste before the king and said, I want you to give me right away the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So it went from the mom saying, I want the head of John the Baptist. I want the guy dead. To the daughter going back to the party and saying, okay, king, here's the deal. I want you right now, right here, to give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. That's her idea. Right? One of two things is going on here. Either um, she had learned how the game was played. She knows that her uncle, stepdad, creep guy, is a really conniving, sleazy guy who can get out of something really easily. And if all she asks for is John's head, he's going to say, absolutely, I'll get back to you in two weeks. No, so she lays out not just what she wants, but the when, where, and how of it. She's going to leave him no room to wiggle. I, the person you made the promise to, 
want you, the person who made the promise, to give to me, as you promised you would, the head of the prophet on a platter. And then she takes what had to be a pretty gross mess, because there's no delay. I mean, the king said, go cut his head off. They cut his head off. They brought it in. And the guy brings in the platter. And the text indicates they gave it right to the girl who immediately took it in all of her royal finery. She's wearing all of her royal finery that she'd just been dancing in, right? Pleasing the crowd. So it was obviously something beautiful, which is now covered with prophet's blood. And she gives it to her mom. First lesson in this text, not really related to the main idea, but it's, it's still a lesson. Be careful what you ask for. You might get it. Mom, you wanted a prophet's head. Here it is. It's all yours. I would have been happy with something else, right? So she presents to her mother the head of the prophet, right? Verse 29, when his disciples heard about it, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. Very visual story, right? What does it have to do with Jesus? I'm trying, I'm trying to find Jesus in this story, and quite frankly, it's, it's not working, not working really, really well, right? So I go back through the story, and, and I make just what observations I can make. First of all, again, this particular lesson of being careful what you wish for. But I also observe that ultimately, character is what matters in the decision we made. Had a great discussion with Al about this Wednesday night. Um, we were talking about this whole thing. What's going on? Why is this here? Why is Mark telling us this stuff? And um, Al's comment was, this kind of reminds me of Pilate. He said, okay, explain. You know, Pilate was a really powerful, strong man who at the critical moment in his life was powerless. Pilate did not want to send Jesus to the cross, but because of a Jewish mob, he did. One of the two most powerful men in Israel was powerless in the face of the mob. And in the very same way, Herod, the other most powerful man in Israel, was powerless. Twisted around, manipulated, compelled to do what he did not want to do by his wife and stepdaughter. Powerful men incapable of controlling their actions and what they did. Why? Because inside they were not powerful. Inside they were weak. Who ultimately, ultimately, who we are inside will determine the direction of our lives. Whatever the outside may look like, however rich, famous, powerful, whatever words you want to use, however may look to the outside, it is what we are inside that ultimately will be the determining factor. It's character that matters, right? But then there's one other point, and this is where I think to think of Christ, where actually this passage does speak very clearly of Christ, and that is there but is but one true king. Herod called himself a king. Let's just talk about the Herod family just for a little bit to kind of get some, some, some clarity on this. Uh, the dynasty, the Herodian dynasty, goes back to a guy by the name of Antipater who was an Idumean, he was a descendant of the Edomites, he's on the other side of the Jordan River, who in the, in the ending and the waning of the Hasmonean Empire, which was that Jewish empire that ruled after the fall of Alexander the Great, they ruled briefly, where when, when the Hasmonean Empire was collapsing, uh, this particular Idumean, Edomite ruler named Antipater, 
figured out now was a good time to step in. He had figured life was better on the other side of the river in, in I, would say, I would say, Palestine. And I'm going to call it Palestine because it represents more than Israel. It's, it's a huge area. That was his opportunity to move in and take over. And, and I would one more thing before I go any farther in this. A lot of times when we start looking at Scripture and we start talking about like the history behind it, we go, well, why are we doing that? Why is it so important to do this? This is a textbook example of why it is so important to put the effort in to see the text from the perspective of its first readers. You see, we're reading this stuff going, yeah, like it's ancient history. wasn't to them. To Mark's first readers, this is all very contemporary stuff. And understanding that will help us to see, I think, what Mark is trying to say here, right? Because Mark's readers saw the Herodian dynasty in a way we don't see it. They had a much deeper appreciation for who they were. It starts with this Edomite guy who comes into Israel and, we and weasels his way into power through his connections with Rome, becomes king of the Jews, though he was neither king nor Jewish, right? He has a son, Herod the Great. See, there's all kinds of Herods in the Bible. Herod the Great, one of the great builders of the Roman Empire. His name was known from Spain to India. Right. Tremendous builder, he built Masada. Not only a builder in the sense of committing his empire to build, but actually designing a lot of the things himself, right? Shrewd, brutal. Herod the Great is the one before whom the Magi presented themselves who ordered the murder of the children in Bethlehem. Shrewd, brilliant, and utterly ruthless. Herod has a great many sons. Herod the Great has a great many sons. He killed three of them. He banished a fourth. He had his own wife decapitated on the suspicion of infidelity. Right? He, like his um, son, had no problem putting people to death. Right? Brutal man. Of his sons who remained, he divvied up his empire among them. One of them had a daughter named Herodias. She would marry another one of his sons at the direction of the grandfather, right? who would then divorce a wife to get her. Again, i gotta, I got to lay this out, try to do this. It's, if I get lost, excuse me. One of the sons has a daughter named Herodias. No, Herod has a daughter named Herodias. She marries one of her uncles. She then divorces the uncle so she can marry another son who divorces his wife in order that he can marry her. The wife he divorces is actually a Bedouin princess. Keep that in mind, right? The Herod we're talking about here, Herod Antipas is his name, the wife he divorced in order to marry Herodias is a Bedouin princess. He gets rid of her, sends her back home to dad, right? Then he marries Herodias. Herodias is, is at the root of the problem here, besides these guys. John the Baptist calls him to task. John the Baptist is put to death. And the story goes on from there, right? We read that, and we go, well, that's history. What does it have to do anything? Um, Herod comes to power. Herod the Great comes to power well before, about the time of Christ's birth, a little before that. Herod Antipas, who we're reading about here, is the Herod before whom Jesus was tried. He's the Herod who beheaded John the Baptist, we just read. He's also the Herod that initiates all of the persecution against the church in the book of Acts and is responsible for James being beheaded, right? There actually was one son that was only marginally disgusting. That was, our, that was Agrippa, the guy that shows up in the book of Acts before whom Paul was tried. 
So this family is all over the place. This is a massive, powerful family. That's the visual I want us to get. It's a massive, powerful family, okay? Mark writes his gospel in 65, roughly, A.D., all right? By 65 A.D., you can't find this family. That's the point. By 65 A.D., less than two generations from Herod the Great coming to power, the Herodian dynasty is done. By 100, it, there's no trace of it on earth. I especially like this one, Herod Agrippa, the guy that beheaded John, right? Remember I said he divorced his first wife, the Bedouin princess? She went home to daddy, a Bedouin king. I don't know about you, but there's a list of people I think are, are bad to offend, and Bedouin kings would be on that list. Her, her, her dad, Eretus IV, took about three years to raise a massive army. I never knew about this. He raised a massive army, he invaded Galilee, and he wiped Herod out. By 40, Herod has fled to Rome with just his wife. They get to Rome, they ask Caesar, who's an old buddy, because all the Herod kids were educated in Rome, who's an old buddy, hey, would you help me out in this? This crazy Bedouin just attacked me and wiped out my army. At first, Caesar is inclined to help, but then Caesar dies. And the Caesar who replaced him wasn't an old friend of Herod. Excuse me, wasn't an old friend. And he said, how does exile sound to you? And Herod and Herodias are sent somewhere up north. We're not even sure where. They die. We don't know when or how. They literally disappear. So when I say look at this through the lens of Mark's first readers, what I'm trying to say is when we read about all the power of the Herodian family, the first Christians to read that gospel had maybe just the morning before sitting there with their copy of the, you know, the Rome Times going, hey honey, another Herodian bit the dust. They didn't last. They didn't last because they were fraudulent, they were illegitimate, they were cruel, they were evil. And they were eradicated as a result of their own duplicity, their own sin. What the first century reader would see when they read the name Herod was just how false the rulers of this world are. As Isaiah would say in chapter 42, the nations of this world are a drop in the bucket. They are like dust on the scale. They weigh nothing. See, this is what I get from this. Even though John doesn't say anything about, or rather Mark doesn't say anything about Jesus in this text, the whole passage is written in contrast to the person and character of Jesus. Everything I read here is what a king is not supposed to be. As opposed to Jesus, who is everything that a king is supposed to be. Powerful, legitimate, genuine, good, righteous, and holy. You know, we as, as Americans, this is why I think this is so good for us. We as Americans, let's be honest, we struggle with the idea of Jesus as king, right? Because we just don't do that well. The idea of an absolute monarch, we don't, we don't do that, right? Or do we? I think we do. We have a lot of people in our, in our culture who are incredibly powerful, speak with enormous authority, sometimes absolute authority that answers to no one, no law, no man. 
We have a monarchy. They just get there differently. And we sometimes as Christians can become very, very frustrated and very, very anxious seeing the direction powerful, influential people take our country, our culture, our nation, the direction we see it moving. And we can get really upset until I read this. Because here I see the end of that kind of power. Here I see where that authority goes. It goes nowhere. We used to sing uh, in the church, we used to sing an old chorus. Um, hadn't thought about this one for a long time. We shall see the king. How many of you remember it? We shall see the king. We shall see the king when he comes. The kingdoms of this world shall soon before him fall. We shall see the king when he comes. We shall see the king. We shall see the king. He's coming in power. All hail the blessed hour. We shall see the king when he comes. So when we find ourselves going, oh, Lord, look at this world. Look at our country. Look at our society. Look at our culture. Look at the direction it's going. We have reason to be concerned. We do. We have reason to pray. We have reason to do everything we can to change the direction things are going, change the situation, but ultimately not to despair. Not to despair. We have tremendous encouragement and confidence because we know our king is the king, and he is coming. Father, I thank you for, the, for your word, Lord, as we look to it. Uh, initially, Father, it's, it's a little bit hard for us to grasp because I, I don't see Jesus here. And then I understand that is the whole point. This is not Jesus. This is a worldly king. This is a worldly ruler. This is a worldly family, Father, which exercised incredible control. And that, Father, like that, we're gone. Yes, indeed. As the prophet said, the nations are like a drop in the bucket, like dust on the scales. Thank you, Lord, that we serve with a confidence that the one to whom we look for all rule, all power, and authority is indeed coming with a perfection and a beauty and a justice, Lord, that will put all things of the past in the past, Lord, even now, Father, we see the evidence of your hand, your power. We see healings, Father. We see your goodness, Lord. Even as evil, Father, would be so prevalent, yet we see the signs of your goodness, the signs of your Son's coming, and we thank you for that. And pray, Father, that as we go through the challenges that we go through, the encouragement that we have from your word would be evident to those around us that they might see through us the evidence of our Savior's return. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord.